Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today we have a very special episode. First of all, let me introduce my co-host and Ajam editor, Ali Karju Ravari, who is Professor of Islamic Studies at Bucknell University. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So today we're here to talk about a fascinating subject, the occult and new age in Iran. We are here with Professor Ali Reza Dustar, the Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies and the Anthropology of Religion at U Chicago's Divinity School. It's a pleasure to have you here, Ali Reza. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And so we're going to be talking about your latest book, The Iranian Metaphysicals, Explorations in Science, Islam, and the Uncanny, Princeton University Press, 2018. As you know, everybody in this room knows that there's kind of been uh, definitely a resurgence in the interest of magic, of the occult, especially in Iran and in Islam, especially online, on Twitter, on social media. I see it all the time. So I'm really happy we're able to have this interview with you today. Let's start with a, with a very easy question for our, our listeners. What is the occult? What is magic in Iran? It's probably the hardest question you could have asked me right off the bat. But um, uh, yeah, so the occult in this book refers to a bunch of different things. There's a tradition of sciences that's, that goes back many hundreds of years. It's known in Persian as ulum gharibe or ulum khafiye. In Arabic, uh, often it's called ulum gharibe. Literally the strange sciences or the hidden sciences. And these are sciences that deal in some form or other with forces and powers and entities that are unseen. So uh, the jinn, for example, sorcery, astrology, uh, alchemy, and other things like this. Now, as I mentioned, this is a hundreds of years old tradition of science, and it's, it has a very complicated, uh, historically a very complicated position within the constellation of intellectual and practical traditions in Islam. But in the last 120 years or so, it's also entered into a set of really interesting and complex relationships with uh, other modes of knowing and engaging with the world, including what sometimes is called European esoteric sciences. So this includes uh, spiritism, mesmerism, theosophy, forms of really engaging with the spiritual world or with um, invisible entities and powers that are not necessarily rooted in the Islamic world, but they've entered into relationship with it. And in Iran uh, and elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire, in, in the Indian subcontinent, elsewhere in the Middle East, and, and, and really all over the world. As far as Muslims have been concerned, for a really long time, they've been able to integrate certain aspects of these other uh, traditions into the occult. Now, in the book, I don't always use the occult to refer to all of this. I use this other term called metaphysical or metaphysics. And there I'm, I'm really following my interlocutors, the Iranians I worked with, who use the term metaphysique to speak about things that really are beyond ordinary experience and that one can think about in comparative ways. So, you know, we, not everybody necessarily thought of things like jinn or the occult or sorcery and so on in terms of an Islamic tradition, right? So sometimes they thought of it in comparative terms. Sometimes they thought of these things as they pertain to other parts of the world, other religious traditions. And when they did that, they often used the word metaphysique. Part of what the book does is really sets out what metaphysique is and why it's significant and how it allows people to bridge different modes of knowledge, whether they be Islamic and not Islamic or scientific and, and religious and so on. Before we get into the book itself, a reason why I said the occult in Iran and not the occult in Islam is because what you're inferring here is that there is 
different religious and non-religious traditions that are informing how people view metaphysics in Iran. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the occult in, in different religious traditions that have been around in Iran and circulated in Iran as well? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, if, if you look at the history of the occult sciences from the dawn of Islam onwards, the occult sciences have, have been from the very beginning a space where all kinds of traditions and, and sources have come to mingle with one another, right? So you have, for example, at the early medieval period, you have what from like our perspective might be pagan engagements with the supernatural, astrological practices that either existed in uh, Zoroastrian practice or, or that have what we now think of as Hindu provenance. And, and later on, these things really combine with other things like Neoplatonic magic and, and Gnosticism and other things. So from the very beginning, it's not like right off the bat, there's some kind of coherent Islamic tradition of sciences that develops. It's, it, it begins by looking to very many different traditions of knowledge. There's this whole uh, vast corpus of what's called the Hermetica or the Hermetic tradition that's coming out of Egypt and the Hellenistic Middle Eastern world. So, you know, that's the beginning. And then when we look at the modern period, as I mentioned, there's some of these European eddies and, and streams that are entering into relationship with the Islamic occult sciences. And uh, it's also important to emphasize that it's not just Muslims who are doing these things, right? So there's Jewish practitioners of Sufism, there's Christian practitioners of the occult, and you know they're they're all looking at really a range of things that are available to them. And it's not always something that they look at in distinctively denominational or confessional terms. The occult is sometimes a space where it's possible for connections and overlaps and exchanges to occur. Building on that point, you talk in the book about the leisure of the occult, the leisure of Ulum Gharibe, and how it has an entertainment value. Both I want to ask you to talk more about that. What is it that's so entertaining about these, these things? But also, how is the occult itinerant? How do these sciences actually travel around the world? I mean, you could write a social history of the world solely through the, the occult sciences. So what is it about it that it's itinerant and everyone takes joy in it? What's so universal about it? That's a wonderful question. I mean, every listener could ask themselves this question, why are you listening to this podcast in the first place? Probably some aspect of it has to do with the mystery and intrigue of things unseen. Many of us in the lifestyles that we lead, we think of the occult or the metaphysical or the magical as things that should not really be part of our rational, scientifically organized lives, right? Right. I mean, I, one of my questions was when you say occult sciences, to me, obviously, probably from my post-Enlightenment Euro-American education, right, is that like those things seem antithetical to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe part of the interest is that there's something that seems inappropriate or dangerous or mysterious in other ways. You're playing with dangerous forces. Now, that danger might be you're flirting with superstition. You're doing something that your friends may not approve of. They might think you're a little bit crazy. Or other people might say there's actual danger in these kinds of things, you might go mad, you know, you might lose your money, you know, you might lose your health and, and so on and so forth. So I think there's, there's an aspect of that that, you know, we live with right now. But historically, if you look at the occult sciences, if you look at medieval texts, for example, on the occult, there isn't a clear distinction very often between sorcery proper, you know, like real magic, let's say, and legardemain or, or sleight of hand. So you read, like in the early modern period, you might read a book like Vaizakashifi's Astrogosemi, which is a compendium on the occult. And he looks at tricks and ruses and sleight of hand, things that are, he himself says are for entertainment as a part of the occult. 
And in the earlier periods, uh, you know, in the medieval period, there's this group known as the Banu Sasan. You have these itinerant jugglers, tricksters, and performers who are moving around and they're performing for the public. And a lot of what they do is what we think of as magic. And some of these things are still performed today, like egg bag tricks or these, these things where a magician will guess something that you're holding in your mind or this object that you're holding in your hand and so on. There's an entertainment dimension that is baked into the occult from uh, quite early on. If you look at literature also, so think of the 1001 Nights, a lot of the entertainment of the 1001 Nights really is about magic. I mean, it's like gin and spirits and, you know, creatures who shapeshift and sorceress powers and, and all this kind of stuff. So to the present moment, that's still the case. So much of film, for example, is dealing with magic and with the fantastical and, and the supernatural. Why is it that people are so interested in this stuff, right? If we think that this is really not serious or we shouldn't be interested in it or, you know, whatever, there's something about it that appeals to us. And one way in which it's really approached by the people that I worked with is through this lens of entertainment. There's a way in which one can relate to the occult and to the metaphysical while not being so committed that one would bring upon oneself criticism for being superstitious or too credulous or, or whatever. So, you know, taking, looking at it as something that's merely entertaining is one way to fend that off. On the question of the sciences, I mean, the, the way that we today tend to distinguish what counts as science and what doesn't count as science is something very particular. If you even put aside the occult sciences, right now in Iran, for example, ulum covers a really vast number of topics and traditions. In the Jose, for example, the Islamic Centers of Learning, they talk about ulum agli and ulum nagli the traditional sciences or the, the discursive sciences on the one hand, and then the rational sciences. One of them, the naqli or quoted, they're discursive. They tend to be about the hadith or the Quran and so on, like Quranic exegesis. It's looked at as a science, which means uh, basically in that context, it refers to a systematic mode of knowledge. And, and then you have ulum agli, which might include philosophy, it might include theology, but it might also include the sciences of various sorts. Science there isn't this kind of post-19th century positivistic conception of the empirical sciences, right? In the same way, the occult sciences doesn't really sound strange when you think about it within this broader constellation. You talk about entertainment. Entertainment as something, for me, brings an idea of levity or comedy or amusement. But often, as you mentioned before, when you're dealing with the unseen, you're also things that are dangerous, things that are transgressive, things that are forbidden. Let's say when I think about superstitions or when I think about magic, oftentimes it draws from a otherworldly and like a demon, yeah, an ominous or demonic power. Is this something that you see in the discussions of the occult? Is there a idea that this is forbidden magic or this is something that should be avoided or shunned in, in let's say, the medieval period, but also in, in today? Often when people think about magic in the West, they tend to think about a narrow field of uh, knowledge that is associated with Satan, right? And that's that there's a Christian perspective on this that itself is very particular because, because even in Christianity, there's been ways in which magic has been entertained and, and taken seriously in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and so on. In the Islamic world, it's important to emphasize that not all magic is necessarily associated with Satan. There are some forms of magic that are seen to be dark and that, that draw on nefarious forces and so on, but it's not all like that. Now, the kinds of magic that are associated with nefarious powers, like uh, harming other people, 
through sorcery, curses, separating husband and wife or two lovers from one another, capturing someone's heart and hypnotizing them in a way and so on. These kinds of things, what they sometimes involve is drawing on the powers of the jinn. And the reason that they're seen to be dangerous is not necessarily because the jinn are seen to be evil, they're ambiguous figures, but rather because they're seen to be uncontrollable. And because in bringing them into one's life, one then risks not being able to get rid of them later, right? If you, if you bring them in, then you can't really necessarily politely ask them out. And there's another side to this, which is some of the occult practices that are seen to be nefarious, at least in the popular imagination, are associated with Islamically transgressive acts like defilement or doing things like reading the Quran backwards and, and, and so on. So you, that, those are some of the reasons. And there's dangers associated with all of this. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, just because it's dangerous, it can't be fun, right? I mean, in fact, lots of things that are dangerous are fun precisely because they are dangerous. Part of what I'm interested in the book is illuminating how things can be both dangerous and entertaining. One way that I talk about in the book is there's, there's a way in which some people balance or try to balance, on the one hand, seeing things that are, that seem to be very real and scary and dangerous. And then on the other hand, denying that they are real. And the space of denial and, and acceptance is where it's possible to be thrilled. So it's kind of like watching a movie where part of the reason that you're thrilled is you're really pulled into that world while also knowing all along that this is not real. It's not quite exactly the same thing, but there's, there's a dynamic there, right? Between being pulled into it and attempting to pull back. It's just interesting that it, as in terms of studying religion, particularly religion in Iran, and getting towards how people actually live in relation to either religion or metaphysical ideals or the unseen in general, when you move away from this belief-centric sort of textbook, simplistic notion of a religious identity that's somehow monotonous, and you get towards the actual lived practice of people who either identify as religious or not, but they do deal with things that we would at least relate to that metaphysical world. This is really interesting because it complicates the picture of Iran, and particularly Iranian Islam, which usually is treated as like this monolith. And the only diversity in Iran is in terms of minority religions. But it shows that even Islam in Iran is not clear. That definition is not clear. So could you talk more about that? So there's several things that the book does with regard to this question. And you're right. I mean, one of the main points that I had in writing this book was to show the really complex uh, religious landscape in Iran and to not just show that it exists, but to try to explain it in some way. How does understanding this complexity challenge how we think about the Islamic tradition and how we think about religious traditions more broadly and how we think about the relation between religion and science and, and other things. So, you know, we, we've been talking all about the occult, right? And with the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, I mentioned earlier that there's an influx of European esotericist traditions, right? Esoteric meaning just that they're dealing with unseen, secretive things that tend to have some connection to the supernatural or, you know, the metaphysical. Spiritism is one of these, spiritism being a religious tradition that was established in France and that was fundamentally based on communication with the souls of the dead that exist in some plane of existence and using things like turning tables and Ouija boards and telegraphic methods of various sorts to talk to these souls. This became the basis of a religious practice in Iran. You also have theosophy, you have mesmerism, what's the progenitor of, of hypnotism. All of these things enter Iran, and as the, the century kind of wears on, and in the early 21st century in particular, you have a proliferation of things that look like New Age spiritualities. 
And and when I say New Age spirituality, what do I mean? There's Eastern mysticisms of various sorts, yoga, transcendental meditation, Osho, Scientology, there's shamanisms of various sorts. And there's also these spiritual aspirant Iranians who pick up some of these things and mix them with one another or introduce their own things and, and come up with entirely new modes of spirituality. So all this is going on. One way of looking at this is to say, oh, well, you have the dominant Orthodox Islam, and then you have these other things, which are all not Islam. They somehow lie outside. They're alternative. They're unorthodox and so on. You could look at some of these things and pick out the ways in which they they have frictions with, say, Islamic theology or with Islamic jurisprudence or whatever. But in practice, there's actually a lot more mixture and a lot more cross-fertilization and appropriation happening than people might give credit for. An example I have of this in the book is in the 1940s, Ayatollah Khomeini, who later went on to become the founder of the Islamic Revolution, uh, the leader of the revolution and the founder of the Islamic Republic, he wrote this treatise called Kashful Asrar, which was a response to anti-clerical critics of the Shi'i clerical establishment. He wrote this treatise, and in one part of it, in defending Islamic doctrine, he drew on the ideas of spiritists and mesmerists and psychical researchers. Who is more orthodox Shi'i, right, than Ayatollah Khomeini, as far as the popular imagination at least is concerned? And yet he's folding in what he saw as scientific notions into the defense of Islam. Similarly, if you look at the first decade or so of the 21st century, there's all these preachers and public speakers and sometimes even government officials who are drawing on spiritual ideas that have their sources somewhere outside of the Islamic tradition. And yet at that point, they didn't necessarily see these as in any way opposed to Islam. Some of them later on realized that, oh, maybe these things are not orthodox and so on. But what's interesting for me is that this is a lot more complex than, you know, there's this very clear boundary between what is Islam and what is not Islam, right? As far as these practices are concerned, to see how these processes of borrowing and, 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 and um, an exchange and really transformation occur within different traditions. Getting into more of the topic of the book, uh, you deal with this this term Ramal, this figure Ramal, and you do give it a definition, but then you leave it untranslated for most of the book because both it's a, it's a specialist, right? But also the term takes on so many different instantiations in your research. What is a Ramal? So not many Ramals will refer to themselves as Ramals, right? So Ramal tends to be a term that other people use to refer to occult specialists of various sorts. It's right? used as a curse in Iran, right? Madike Ramal. Madike Ramal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be used, it could be as used as a, as a curse. Some people do say that they are Ramal. And that's when they are specifically thinking about geomancy. So a particular mode of divination. But often they don't. And so it could be a curse. It could be a derogatory term in various ways. What I'm interested in in the book is really approaching the Ramal from these different directions in the ways that he's constituted or she is constituted, mostly he, sometimes she, by discourses of various sorts, you know, public ideas about superstition and rationality that single out the Ramal as the ideal type for irrationality and unreason. It's one particular way in which the Ramal comes into focus. So, for example, news reports where one Ramal or other is identified as having duped and taken advantage of a bunch of hapless victims, often referred to as gullible women and girls. You know, it's very gendered uh, most of the time. You know, that, that's one way that the Ramal comes into focus as this charlatan who's peddling superstition and taking advantage of people's beliefs and engages in various kinds of criminal activity, whether that's down-out extortion or robbery or sometimes even, you know, rape and, and murder and things like this. 
So that's one way in which this happens. But then, you know, even though there's this public discourse about Ramal as a figure of superstition and charlatanry and danger, often there's also accompanying that an idea that the Ramal actually does traffic in supernatural powers. So it's not just that they're taking advantage of people's beliefs, but they actually, there's, there is something to their power. And what that power is, it's not always obvious, even to people who are distrustful of Ramals, it's not always obvious that they think that the occult should be distrusted in general. So are we supposed to distrust everyone who is a Ramal or some Ramals are charlatans and others are not charlatans or are there occult specialists that should not be called Ramal but do things that are very similar to Ramals? All of that is extremely ambiguous. So part of what the book does is it tries to really show that ambiguity. For example, I have this chapter where I talk about a police officer who I interviewed, this police commander, who was retired at the time of our interview. And I had asked them to explain to me how it is that the police treats cases that have to do with the occult in some way or with Ramals in some way. Do they actively pursue Ramals and try to shut them down and arrest them and so on? Or, you know, how, what is their attitude? And in the first half, he was explaining to me that, yeah, you know, there's all these people who are taking advantage of people's beliefs and extort them and, you know, do all these dangerous things. And then he started talking about how, well, despite all of that, in fact, many Ramals do know things and they do have certain powers. And then he started telling me about cases where he himself had consulted Ramals to solve particularly tricky problems. So, you know, that's one of the spaces where the ambiguity really becomes clear. And similarly, I did this thing, I sent esteftas, so requests for fatwas to most of the major maraja taqlid, so these sources of emulation of Shi'i Islam from Ayatollah Sistani in Iraq to seven or eight of the maraja in, in Iran itself. And what I asked them was, is it okay to learn occult sciences like Raml, right? So Ramal is a practitioner of Raml or Jafr or you know, other sciences. And if it's okay to learn those sciences, is it okay to practice it? And what was interesting to me was that very rarely did somebody say Don't, you know, that this is forbidden. They would say, you should try to stay away from that stuff, right? So there's a recognition that these things are dangerous, but also a recognition that they're not absolutely forbidden. So you, you can engage with these sciences and one can engage with these sciences in an appropriate way. But most people are not able to do this, so most people should stay away. So that, that's, that's a much more complicated picture than an idea that sorcery is absolutely forbidden or the occult is absolutely forbidden. That's simply not the case, at least where Shi'i Islam, you know, in its present form is concerned. Talking about this ambiguity, your own sort of fieldwork, it's really interesting because we are hyper aware of your presence and how it's affecting the conversation. And I'm thinking here of your interaction with Mercedes, who is this female Ramon that you deal with. And you mentioned in one part that you're afraid that she may have cast a love spell on you. Doing fieldwork with the occult sciences, did you ever feel like you were under the influence of something? Yeah. Um, b- before I even did much research, when I was at Harvard as a graduate student, I would hear from people when, I, when they asked me, what are you working on? And I said, well, I'm interested in the occult. Some of them would say, oh, you know, this stuff is dangerous. You should be really careful. Maybe you want to pick a different topic. You know, if you get too close to this stuff, you could go mad. You know, the jinn could possess you or they could kill your loved ones or shorten your life. You know, all this kind of stuff. Naturally, you know, some of that stuff actually scared me. And I mean, regardless of how much you say, oh, this stuff is all nonsense and it's not real or whatever. I mean, it gets to you. And there was a point where I talk about this in the introduction when I watched a few video clips from, at the time, this Tim Burton movie had just come out called uh, 
Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. And there are scenes where he's slitting the throats of his enemies as a barber. And I, I really have a phobia of throat slitting scenes. And I don't know why. Don't ask me why I was watching these scenes on YouTube. So, um, so I watched this and then I went to bed and I started to have nightmares. And at some point, I, when I described the nightmares, I'm not going to do it right now, but I, I described these nightmares. And then I got up and at some point in this state between sleep and wakefulness, I remember asking myself, am I being possessed by jinn. And it was like this this sentence had come into my head that wasn't even mine. And that's classically what jinn possession is, right? It's like you hear things that are not your own or you say something that's not your own words. So after this, I told myself, okay, you know what? I I can't, you know, I can't do this research if I'm going to be flirting with this kind of danger and going crazy. So I need to find some way of protecting myself. And the way I did that was to actively deny these things existed. If people ask me, I would say, well, you know, I mean, I don't believe in any of it. I don't think it's real, but that's just the research that I do. But it wasn't because I had actually done some rigorous empirical research and reached the conclusion that there's nothing that's that's true about the occult. I did that as a way of protecting myself. And even so, there were incidents that happened in my research where, you know, I would in some way still be pulled in or in some way have to deal with something. So you mentioned the Mercedes case. I was visiting her, and I remember she was, uh, you know, I was visiting her in her suite, and she was telling me about, this is an occult specialist who was explaining to me how the occult works. And she started mixing me a drink, and, and I started thinking, what if, like, she puts some drugs in this drink? Or, you know, I, I had internalized all this kind of the discourse that I'm talking about, about Ramos taking advantage of people. So I was having all these fears, and it wasn't all necessarily about the occult, right? And, you know, the way we think about magic, it could be all kinds of things. There was another incident before this where my research assistant, right after our first meeting with Mercedes, he called me late at night and said, he was breathless, and he said, are you okay? Is everything all right? And I said, yeah, what's up? And he said that right after his our meeting with this Ramal, he had gone back home and he had been sitting with his friend in the library in their house, and they were talking about the day's events and about the interview. And as they're doing this, they have this bookcase, which has uh, glass doors and it's like on the other side of the room. And they're talking about this woman, this, this Ramal, and then the glass shatters like in front of them. And these guys just freak out. Naturally, what they thought was that like some jinn or some ominous presence had followed them and was, was showing itself in this way. And I remember as they were saying this, I was standing in a dark room and I was looking outside the window and this, these curtains were sort, sort of moving in the breeze. And this chill went down my spine. I took out a 2,000 toman bill from one pocket and put it in another because I thought, I'll pay this as sadaqeh. This friend of mine was saying, this, this research assistant was saying, you should pay sadaqeh so that you ward off this evil. And I, I took out this money and put it in my other pocket. And later on, I was thinking, oh, this is such a classic anthropological moment when the field makes itself present, so to speak. And the boundary between the so-called objective researcher and the topic is obliterated. And so I was thinking of it as, oh, this could be such a cool thing to write about. But at the same time, I genuinely felt scared in that moment. Later on, I reflected about how to think about that. It's not like I, in some intellectual or religious sense, I believed in jinn, but that this happened to me. And how, you know, how does one actually make sense of that? It's part of what the, the book really tries to do. Ali Reza, we don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're busy. The last question, I just want to know, how would you complicate the notion of science or the history of science in your book? And what do you think should be the main takeaway from somebody reading your, your work? You know, you asked me earlier about how is it that the occult sciences are sciences. I don't really deal with that in the book, but there's definitely many instances where I think about the relationship between science and, and the occult and, and Islam. 
if not always in the context of the occult sciences, but in other contexts, like with spiritism, with psychical research, um, and with some of these new age spiritualities that I write about. There's several things that I think are, are of interest. One is that typically when historians and religious studies scholars in the last 20, 30 years, when they've thought about how religious practitioners make scientific claims, they what they tend to do with that is they say, here are religious practitioners making appeals to a system of knowledge that is more authoritative or more prestigious than religion, and they do that as a way of really shoring up their own credentials or somehow making what they say sound more authoritative. So in other words, it becomes a strategic practice. It becomes something that they do not because they actually believe that this is the case, but because they think that it'll advance their own ends. What I try to do with science in the book is a bit different. What I'm saying is that we really need to think about metaphysical experimentation as a mode of inquiry that can be experimental, just like scientific inquiry can be experimental. And often these metaphysical inquiries involve scientific modes of knowing, including empirical testing. And they also often draw on the methods and attitudes and concepts and models of sciences that we might look at now and say, these are not real science, they're pseudoscience and whatever, or whatever, right? Like psychical research, for example, or parapsychology. But in fact, historically speaking, this boundary has not been as clear cut as it might seem. There have been periods when the parapsychological or the psychical has been pursued by very serious scientists. And it's only retroactively, like from our position, that we look at some of these things and say, oh, this, this shouldn't be counted as part of the sciences. In fact, part of the way that science kind of historically develops or, or changes is through bracketing off certain things as not scientific. And that includes what we think of as superstitious or as, as the pseudoscientific. Like if you look at the early 20th century or late 19th century, psychical research was presented at and pursued at major psychology conferences the world over in France and you know, in other places um, alongside laboratory sciences and alongside psychoanalysis. It's only retroactively that we then look at these things and say that they're not really scientific. So that's partly what the book is trying to do and complicate how we think about religious practitioners who are involved in these things and not necessarily disqualifying at the outset what they're doing as unscientific in some way. Ali Reza, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So for our listeners, once again, that was Ali Reza Dustar, Assistant Professor of Islamic Studies and the Anthropology of Religion at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. If you want to engage in the conversation, please contact us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and we'll talk to you there. Until next time.